Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Three, two, one, release, release, release. Fire. Fire. We thought we'd start today with a jet engine. That was the noise of the Virgin Galactic space plane heading up to the edge of space, and we'll have more on that later in the show. Welcome to the show. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Chelsea White. We're joined today by one of our reporters, Lyle Liverpool. Hi, Lyle. Hello. As well as rockets and billionaires, this week we're looking at gardening on Jupiter's moon Europa, and we're looking at the deepening impacts of the heatwave and drought in the western United States. We've also got some intriguing evidence about what cosmetics people were using 6,000 years ago in Neolithic times. But first, take advantage of our summer sale and let New Scientist Academy's Science Online courses take you on an inspiring journey of learning. Whether into the mysteries of the universe, the intricacies of the human brain, or the vital complexities of our immune systems. These interactive online courses are designed to be not just educational, but accessible and entertaining too. You can start and finish each one whenever you like and work through at your own pace, guided by tutorials by world-renowned experts in their respective fields. Why not sign up now and explore the wonders of science this summer? With our summer sale, you can save up to £100 off the standard rate. Just go to newscientist.com slash courses. Now, we wanted to start this week with an investigation into race-based medical practices. So as you might expect, this is when a patient's race or ethnicity is used to interpret their medical results. For example, just in routine diagnostic tests. Lyle, you've been looking into this. Yeah, so um, doctors and researchers are increasingly questioning race-based medical practices because of the the lack of evidence behind them and uh, the potential harm they can cause, particularly to black patients, because a lot of these practices involve the use of race adjustments specifically for black race or ethnicity. To give an example, if your doctor wants to measure your kidney function, they'll probably start with a test that measures the levels of a waste product called creatinine in your blood. They'll then plug that result into an equation to calculate what's called your estimated glomerular filtration rate or EGFR, uh, which is the rate at which your kidneys filter waste. But embedded into that equation, there'll often also be an adjustment for your race or ethnicity. The most widely used uh, EGFR equations include adjustments specifically for black race. But why do they do that? And, And like, I take it that the EGFR adjustments, these are these are recommended in medical guidelines, are they? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes, or KDGO. Uh, it's an international nonprofit that sets guidelines that are used um, in the US and internationally. And its guidelines advise that labs should multiply EGFR by a specific numerical factor in the equation if the sample is from a black person. Or NICE in the UK, so the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, um, which sets medical guidelines in the UK, across the UK, they also recommend applying a correction factor to GFR values for people of African Caribbean or African family origin. But where is the evidence that you need to make this black race or ethnicity adjustment? Very good question. <laughs> so uh, it comes from an assumption uh, that black people have higher average blood creatinine concentrations than white people because they have more muscle mass on average. But there isn't really much evidence for this. I've been looking into this over the past few weeks, uh, most importantly, because race is a social factor. It has no basis in biology. So many doctors and scientists are questioning the use of race and in kidney function equations, but also in other um, equations and algorithms in medicine. Yeah, but they've been they've been questioning that for years, haven't they? I mean, just last week, the evolutionary biologist Richard Lewontin died, and he was most famous for showing that there's no such thing as genetically meaningful race. Uh, and that was in the 70s. So it's really damaging that this that this aspect of race science has persisted all that time. Yeah, I agree. And the idea about black people having higher creatinine levels can be traced back to a, a pretty small US study from the 90s, which found that uh, participants in that study identified as African-American had higher average uh, creatinine levels compared to those identified as white. But that study included less than 2000 people, only about 200 of whom were African-American. Right. Yeah. So that study was small and unreliable, and it's just been carried forward without questioning. Yeah. And I think this is really the problem with these race adjustments across medicine. And it's really problematic because there's evidence that the use of this uh, race adjustment in, in the case of kidney function equations, that it's contributing to worse health outcomes for black people. I mean, I go into this in a lot more detail in the piece in this week's mag. But basically, it means things like later diagnosis for certain conditions for black people compared to white people. This might be one reason, uh, actually, why black people in the UK are three to five times more likely to end up with end stage kidney disease. Uh, there are similar disparities in the US as well. And uh, NICE, for example, and KDGA, which I mentioned earlier, they still contain these recommendations to adjust for black race or African or African Caribbean family origin. Uh, so mm -hmm. this problem still exists. And it's not just kidney function, is it? There's other areas of medicine where race adjustments are made. Yeah, definitely. So these race-based diagnostic practices are prevalent in other areas of medicine as well. Um, it's all in the piece. Some of it originates from uh, an American doctor uh, and slaveholder uh, who had ideas about lung function uh, in the 1850s, which have persisted into kind of medical practice today. So it's really worrying when you look at the origins of some of these ideas yeah, and how they're just... persisting in medicine. Just because you went over that fast, was that you said he was an American doctor and a slaveholder? And those ideas are still persistent and still are used as the basis for some of this race based medicine. Yeah. So I think it's really a case of looking back at some of the history of medicine and questioning these practices which have become embedded that haven't really been interrogated in, in recent years and, and questioning whether we still need these these adjustments. And these issues are, you know, cropping up in all sorts of places. It came up in the U.S. this year, too, with race norming by the NFL, the U.S. National Football League. 
Yeah, so this this is really disturbing as well. So race norming is where um, scores on cognitive tests uh, used by neuropsychologists to diagnose conditions like dementia, for example, are adjusted depending on the person's race. And like you say, until June this year, the NFL was requiring use of race norming uh, to settle head injury lawsuits. So this was essentially making it more difficult for black former players to qualify for compensation because race norming assumes that they start at a lower level of cognition and so they needed to have reached an even lower level compared to white people in order to be considered to have experienced a sufficient cognitive decline. So it's extremely problematic. Can you at least tell us this is starting to change now, more of it's being uncovered? Uh, definitely. I, I think there is increasing pressure within medicine to get rid of a lot of these race adjustments, but uh, it, it's still a slow process because these assumptions about race and, and these practices are so deeply embedded, as I said, kind of in the history of medicine. And so a lot of them haven't really been questioned. A physician I, I talked to in the US told me that a lot of the pressure to actually change things is coming from the current generation of medical students because they're much more distrustful of race as a concept in biology and medicine. So I think that definitely gives me hope that there's more attention on this and people are questioning these practices more and more. Now it's time for an update on alien life in the solar system. <laughs> Yeah, there's loads of lovely terms in astronomy and cosmology, aren't there? Like termination shock and event horizon. And uh, I've collected a new one this week, impact gardening. So tell us about that, Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of poetic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, this is about Europa, one of Jupiter's moons. It's covered with this icy shell over an ocean of liquid water. And that makes it an intriguing spot for potential signatures of life. Yeah, we've, we've talked about Europa a few times. It's a favourite moon of many people's. And we know what impact craters are. That's when meteorites and micrometeorites batter the surface of the ice. But, but what's impact gardening? Well, the meteorites have tiny shovels and they start digging all over the surface. <laughs> no, not really. No. But they create these small craters and they throw up debris that lands back on the surface and it sort of churns up the ice. So new research shows that over tens of millions of years, the surface of Europa has been disturbed by impacts that are about 30 centimeters deep on average. And that's deep enough that any molecules that could signal life would be affected. So it's like impact plowing. It's like turning <laughs> yeah. over the soil, or not the soil, but the surface layers and, and like, yeah, bringing any signs of life to the surface. And so that could mean that any missions out there, and we've got the Europa, NASA's Europa Clipper um, going out there, these could have a good set of targets to look for uh, signals of life when they when they do get there. Yeah, though that will be a ways off. Europa Clipper isn't set to launch until 2024, but it will also be mapping the moon for a potential future mission that includes a lander. And so one of these churned up spots would be a great landing zone to search for possible signs of life. We interrupt this podcast to bring you news of a new audio product from New Scientist. Yes, subscribers are now able to listen to stories from the world's leading science and technology weekly through the app. We've teamed up with audio production company Sound Understanding to bring you professionally voiced and recorded versions of stories from the magazine each week. It's the exact same content, but in spoken form. It's easy to take part in the New Scientist audio experience. Just go to newscientist.com slash app. Download the issue and explore. Wherever you see a headphones icon, that's where audio content is available and it's all free to subscribers. We hope you enjoy the new app. Check it out and happy listening. 
I'm an adult in a spaceship with lots of other wonderful adults looking down to our beautiful, beautiful Earth. To the next generation of dreamers, if we can do this, just imagine what you can do. That was the British billionaire Richard Branson speaking earlier this week as he floated in microgravity on the edge of space. Uh, You may have seen that Branson's space tourism company Virgin Galactic uh, it launched and it's now about to start commercial flights. Uh, so what did you make of this, Chels? Well, as someone who's always wanted to visit space, uh, the idea of getting close enough to see the curvature of the Earth and float around a bit, it's pretty yeah. enticing. <laughs> but it's still pretty out of reach for me, right? And most other people, it's a pretty expensive ticket at this point. Yeah, yeah, $250,000 or more for a flight. <sighs> yeah. And there was a spat between Jeff Bezos and Branson about this flight, with Bezos's company Blue Origin pointing out the technical definition of space. Uh, and that's because the internationally recognized boundary between Earth and space is the Kármán line, which starts 100 kilometers above Earth. And the Virgin Galactic space plane doesn't go that high. Yeah, it got up to 85 kilometers. So uh, it's not in international space, but in the US definition of space, it, it, I think it is. So yeah, it's just a little argument. It's a tasteful <laughs> little argument. Little they have. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, you know, they get to experience microgravity and they see the black of space and the curve of the planet. And, you know, the video was really impressive. You, ha- yeah. you know, whatever you feel about this stuff, it is something else to see that. But yeah, what, what Bezos and Elon Musk are doing with their space companies is is completely different, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, I called Virgin Galactic's vessel a space plane rather than a spacecraft or a rocket because it's effectively a high altitude aircraft with a rocket booster. But that only goes to suborbital altitudes. Yeah, it's got a rocket uh, kind of jets coming out the back and that's all very <laughs> impressive. But, it, you know, it doesn't get it doesn't get anywhere near orbit. Um, and it just fl- when it comes back, it just flies back down to Earth and lands like a plane. So it doesn't have to do that sort of burn through the atmosphere like a reentry. Um, whereas that's what will happen with Blue Origin and SpaceX. They've got proper spacecraft. Yeah, and that's because their purpose is very different. Bezos and Musk want to go to the moon or to Mars. And Branson just wants to make a space tourism business by making suborbital flights. Yeah, with Justin Bieber and uh, <laughs> Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. He's signed up. I guess if this, um, you know, sort of takes off, uh, then perhaps prices could come down and it might get to a place where only the quite rich rather than just the super rich can afford it. Um, But who knows how quickly that might happen or whether it's the best way to spend money at this point. Well, yeah, that is the thing. And people have been wagging their fingers quite a bit about this, this whole sort of escapade and the the start of um, space tourism. And we mentioned DiCaprio and, you know, he's well known for environmental activism now as much as his acting really. And, Mm -hmm. and it did make me think about the carbon footprint of the flights. Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of people saying the last thing we need when we're trying to cut back on flying is this new commercial rocket plane service to space. Yes, well, I asked Virgin Galactic about that and they said that they've they said they've already completely offset the carbon emissions from the last three space flights and they're looking at how to offset future customer flights and enhance their supply chain's carbon footprint. Well, how are they doing that? <laughs> Well, yeah, it's a big question, isn't it? How you actually do offsetting properly. Virgin Galactic are working with an organization called Natural Capital Partners and Climate Care, uh, and they specialize in this thing in, in offsetting, and they're doing it with um, with Microsoft, who who also made a big this big pledge to get to net zero. Right. Well, we'll see. 
I think space tourism is never going to be, you know, an environmental bonus, is it? And Branson, of course, is the founder of a major airline and air travel is a big part of the problem of emissions reductions that need to be sorted out. I mean, he said that the carbon emissions of the flight, of the space flight, are equivalent to that between London and Singapore, a normal flight between London and Singapore. But, you know, on the space plane, there's only four passengers and there's (laughs) hundreds on a commercial airliner. You know, and the other thing they say is that this science is being done on the Virgin flights so they can claim there's a science dimension to the flights. But at the end of the day, the the main takeaway from this is that space tourism is here and it's happening. Yeah, and I would also argue there there could be some benefit to it, even if it's only available to the very few right now. You know, astronauts have frequently talked about the shift in thinking they had after seeing Earth from above, which makes them think about its fragility and our responsible our responsibility to protect it. Overall, how do you feel about this? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of conflicted. You know, it is really cool and exciting and commercial space travel is an incredible thing. But I just wish that these billionaires would, would compete not to get to the whatever line in space they they want to get to. They can do that, but also compete to protect, you know, vast swathes of ecosystem and spend massive loads of money on carbon drawdown schemes. Let's do that. Next up, we have some important news on the state of the cosmetics industry in Neolithic times. Yeah, this is funny because um, they've been finding lots of little, archaeologists have been finding lots of little ceramic bottles over the years at sites uh, across Central and Southeastern Europe that were occupied by people in Neolithic times. And no one really knew what the bottles were for, but they looked a bit like animal heads or human heads. So people speculated that they were, you know, little toys for children. And most of them had these little holes in them that archaeologists think could be threaded so that you could wear them around your neck or the waist. Right. But then a bottle was found with a solid white substance inside and these long, thin stone tools are found near it, which could have been used to extract the substance within. Okay, And yeah, what was the substance? Well, the material contained a white lead mineral called sericite. Well, different lead minerals were identified in two other bottles. And so the findings match the dates of an earliest known use of lead in the region around 6,400 years ago. The bottles also had this, these lipids that come from beeswax inside. So the idea now is that they were possibly cosmetics, maybe used for medical purposes, uh, because they contained common ingredients for products known from later cultures. Yeah, we all know that there was a makeup uh, industry in ancient Egypt because Cleopatra wore makeup. You know, remember Elizabeth Taylor and her black and green eye makeup? Right. Yeah, that movie is an accurate historical document. Well, yeah, um, but the Egyptians did use copper ores um, and physician, their physicians used lead uh, in, in treatments for eye conditions, which does sound a bit weird, but they did. This story sort of charmed me because it helps bring these people to life a bit more. You know, it reminds us that Neolithic people were really sophisticated. And they looked good, too, with cosmetics. Um, And also the Neanderthals had pigments, by the way. I mean, we don't know if they used uh, cosmetics, but they did uh, use pigments in very sophisticated ways. So it is, yeah, it's nice to learn more about these ancient peoples. Now... Chelsea, you're in Portland. Uh, Let's take a look at the heat wave that's uh, still gripping the US, the Western US especially. How's it going? Well, here in Portland, where I am, things have cooled down, but parts of the Western US are still seeing really intense heat as that heat dome that settled here a couple weeks ago moves inland. 
Death Valley, California hit a record high of 54.4 Celsius. That's 130 Fahrenheit, which may be the hottest temperature reliably measured on Earth if it's confirmed. The area hit another record, too, with the highest low temperature measured in North America at 42 Celsius overnight. Wow. I mean, I've I've been to Furnace Creek, and um, yeah, I mean, it's called Furnace Creek for a reason, isn't it? I <laughs> right. mean, the, the the name kind of hints at it. But the thing is, it's not just Death Valley, is it? You know, we're getting these high temperatures across California and Nevada, and yeah, Las Vegas. It tied its record high temperature as well, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And these temperatures are leaving a lot of damage in their wake. There are now several wildfires blazing in the west. A huge fire is north of Lake Tahoe in California and growing quickly and moving into Nevada. There's a major fire in southern Oregon, which has also threatened a key power transmission line to California. So California's governor had to issue emergency orders to use backup generators to keep the power going. And Lake Mead, which supplies water to Nevada and Arizona, is at a historic low. And those states might now face water rationing. But that's not all the bad news, is it? Um, the, The heat wave has been hitting marine life really hard up and down the West Coast. And I saw one estimate by Christopher Harley, who's a marine biologist at University of British Columbia, suggesting that hundreds of millions of mussels died in the heat wave off the coast of Vancouver. Wow, that's a lot. What about other species? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's still all preliminary at this stage, the estimates for it, but it could be at least a billion deaths if you count um, crabs and barnacles and other coastal marine life. And that's just on the shore. As the heat moves inland, the worry is going to move over to freshwater fish, right? So that's particularly the salmon that are sensitive to increased water temperatures. As they come upriver to spawn, they need cool water in which to lay their eggs. But, you know, with temperatures staying so high for so long, they might not find it. So what are they going to do? Is there anything to do you could do about that to help the salmon? Well, temporarily we can. In some places they're talking about, you know, scooping up the fish into trucks and driving them to fish hatcheries. But obviously that's not something that can or should be done every year. And, you know, as anomalous as this heat wave has been, it's certainly not the last one we're going to see. Yeah, um, you probably saw that number um, that climate scientists came up with where they looked at the, the statistical likelihood for it and found that the heat wave was 150 times more likely because of climate change. Yeah, I saw that. And the most worrying thing about it, I think, was that even with our best models, these spikes in temperatures were not predicted. And the team behind the research said that might be because our climate models are too conservative. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guest, Lyle Liverpool, and thanks to you for listening. As always, do go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe to all the wonders of the magazine and you get 20% discount. Uh, for being a podcast listener. That's newscientist.com slash pod20. That's it. Thanks again. Do spread the word and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Was it too cheesy? This podcast is produced by Ollie Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 
You will be timed. <laughs> you will be <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 